Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where, in the words of Fox Mulder, we want to believe in a better, more transparent and democratic foreign policy, where we are not lied to or manipulated by a government that is using power for their own ends and not for the good of the American people. I raised the X-Files specter today, not only because it is one of my favorite shows of all time, but because of our special topic today, UFOs, or to take on the new, less stigmatizing term, UAP, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. We will be talking to author Gideon Lewis Krauss about his amazing article in The New Yorker, How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously, in our second segment. But first, let's discuss why he wrote the article. It turns out that the government has been taking UFOs very seriously for the last several decades while outwardly encouraging the marginalization and mockery of Americans who have been talking about sightings, studying them, and writing about the phenomenon for years. In other words, the very art of cover-up that Fox Mulder and Agent Scully had been railing against in the fictional series X-Files. While the show largely dramatized the question of whether there was extraterrestrial life and whether visitations were happening regularly, subversively, it hammered away on the secrecy and corrupt nature of the federal bureaucracy, including the military and national security state. What is happening now, where military and experts tied to secret studies are coming out with testimony that the government has been closely examining the real existence of UFOs for some time, tracks what with what many of us have believed forever, that they are always lying to us. So what do you make of this, Dan? Uh, Yeah, so it's interesting that it really has uh, picked up a lot of speed in just the last few years. Uh, And I mean, I remember when this first started coming out when Trump uh, had just come into office and and people were sort of laughing about the fact that Trump was so outrageous that uh, even the existence of UFOs was overshadowed by how ridiculous he was. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the new, in a way, the news got overshadowed a little bit because everyone was obsessed with the president back then. Um, and it, but it's, it's curious to me that it's taken so long for it to, to come out uh, the way that it has. And, but it's also curious to me that the government is now publicizing this and, and actually calling attention to it, which causes me to be somewhat wary about the whole thing because it seems like they wouldn't be publicizing it unless they were trying to get something out of it or if they, if they had right. some sort of angle. And, and so you see the way that it's being exploited by uh, some of, especially some of the more hawkish members in Congress, to try to portray it as this big, uh, scary national security threat. And, you know, we need to get to the bottom of this because the, these uh, these things, whatever they are, uh, pose such a great danger. And I, I'm, I'm I, I don't, obviously we don't know what they are, but my guess is that if these things did belong to a foreign government, uh, if they're as advanced as these people are claiming, uh, then we should just sh- you know, close down shop and give up because we're obviously outgunned. Uh, but but I, you know but I but I don't I don't think that's the case. Uh, but you I, know I, I think I think that isn't it a little bit of a mischaracterization because didn't this actually come out not because the government chose to give us this information but actually because of the work that the doctor in his article that he starts out with described had put it out there after he got frustrated because the the commission wasn't putting anything. The government was failing to divulge information. So it's actually not the government who put this out here, but the work of the work of individuals. 
Right, but, but then the Navy yeah. starts to to sort of lean into it and encourages their pilots to go public with what they've seen, and it's it's just True. a very it's just a very odd reaction. If they've been concealing this stuff for all these years, what why start owning up to it and start showing videos when, when they don't really have to? Yeah. I, so I, I mean I don't know. It just it seems. But the video like was weird. part. The video was part of what the. Um, the doctor, it was part of the information that he had. Um, so so I, I get what you're saying. And also, I, I guess how he got it is partially because of the cooperation of the government, obviously. But, you know, if there's to be such a large secret, first of all, I should say that from personal experience, my uh, son's father is a naval aviator. And I heard stories. This was going back uh, about 12 years ago about people seeing these things. And from an Air Force mechanic, I heard when he was working out in, uh, out in, out West, I heard he, then he said, he started to say, well, he's seen some things because we started talking about UFOs. He said, I've seen something. And then he goes, I actually, I can't discuss this because it's classified, but basically <laughs> I will just tell you that what you're saying about UFOs, um, I uh, and he gave like a thumbs up. So you know, classified. But so yeah. what I'm trying to say is, kind of like all conspiracy theories, if if um, if there is if there was something going on like this, and we have pilots that are seeing it, and we have mechanics that may have found things that fell out of the sky, for instance, and they've been examining it in order to understand how it works. And we have engineers who have been trying to figure out, gee, how's this material like nothing that we've ever seen on this planet? Do you really think the government can seal a secret like that for that long? Because by the way, my father is an engineer as well. And he used to talk to me about this uh, as a kid, about reading about exactly what it describes in this article, about reading about how these things are designed and whether or not it's possible whether or not it's even possible, do we even have anything on this planet that's anything like anything in this? So right. I understand everything you're saying, Dan, and to an extent I agree with you, and I'm 100% skeptical of everything the government does <laughs> and the defense industry, and I get what you're saying. It feels like some kind of thing where they're going to do a bait and switch and be like, oh, and now we should use this reason to buy a yeah. bunch of weapons. But you're 100% right also that if this is even if this is true... How how are weapons even going to help us? Because this and but by the way, if they've been around all this time and they haven't bombed us yet or destroyed us, then it seems like they're pretty much peaceful. So to use this all as this wedge to buy weapons is so very typical of Washington. Yeah. But it also feels like is that even is that even oh. what we're here for? <laughs> And just getting back to what Dan had said, I think that what we're seeing here is a perfect storm. I do not think that the government wanted to push forward with revealing uh, their studies over the last several decades. But, you know, if you read the story, um, listeners, the New Yorker piece by Gideon Lewis Krauss, I mean, he talked about how Leslie Keene, there was one uh, woman in his story who he had identified as a very serious uh, researcher of UFO phenomenon and how she had worked closely with John Podesta, for example, in 
crafting a, a story to sell to the New York Times. And the New York Times covered the story. That led um, to uh, one of the researchers who was on this uh, contract that had turned into a Pentagon task force, uh, John Elizondo, to come forward. I believe he was in the New York Times story. Then he started doing media. And this guy is former military. He, ha he has a sterling background and he, you know, um, he represents this uh, image of, of, of a, a legitimate scientific uh, source for these sightings and for the, the work that he knows that the government has been doing all this time. So I think the, the confluence of the New York Times taking this seriously, you know, politicians right. like Harry Reid, John Podesta, um, then, the, then, 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 that, then the Navy sightings and, and the Navy officers going forward, go, coming out publicly with things that they've seen and the videos. I think, I have, I think that just created a, a situation in which members of Congress like Marco Rubio all of a sudden felt uh, empowered to make this a, uh, a, a congressional issue. And, right. and so then Rubio. the task force was was uh, created, and then the the report that we're expected this June to 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 read about, and that that, that they're supposed to be um, issuing. You know, I believe that they were put. The government was more or less put on the back foot, and then is responding to it. That that's just my gut, and and reading Gideon's article. I think to some extent we see Washington reverting to and and guess what guys we may have to worry about these things in the sky which is sort of the way that rubio spun it um a because <laughs> that's 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 how they spin everything and every that's their go-to move and b they know that that also again it adds that legitimacy if you can tack on national security to an issue all of a sudden oh my God, we should probably be serious about this because again, we have to overcome the fact that UFOs have this ridicule attached to them and that lack of legitimacy. So if real politicians are gonna talk about it without suffering harm to their careers, they probably feel, okay, I was thinking about that when I was listening to Rubio. I'm like, why is he even talking about these things could potentially, oh, we don't know, who, what nation on earth could be the ones who have created such, well, okay. <laughs> All right, Rubio, you're gonna, I mean, but that, it, it's just the typical Washington spin and it's where they always go. So we right, and if you can tap China onto it while you're at it. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> what would China do if China, got, that's the other thing. Did you even notice that they did that too? They also said, what if, China, or I think they did this with the Russians, right? What if they were the ones who understood these things before we do? We, right. I mean, we, come on, guys. We, we, like, we can't oh. allow a UFO gap. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to have a great time talking with Gideon in the in the next segment, and I am very excited to revisit this issue after the task force report comes out because I want to see how revealing. And, uh, and transparent, the government is going to be on this UFO issue. We could place bets on it right now, how transparent they will be knowing the record of Washington on any number of issues, uh, particularly F UFO. So um, anyway, let, let's get into that next uh, segment right now. 
pleasure now to welcome Gideon Lewis Krauss to Crashing the War Party. Gideon is a staff writer at The New Yorker and is the author of the digressive travel memoir, A Sense of Direction, as well as the Kindle single, No Exit. Previously, he was writer at large at The New York Times Magazine, a contributing editor at Harper's, and a contributing writer at Wired. He teaches a reporting seminar at the Graduate Writing Program at Columbia, And most recently, he authored an exhaustive examination of the history of the UFO phenomenon as it relates to government research and tracking of the issue for The New Yorker, entitled How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously. That came out in April. Gideon's article comes at a time of resurgence in the serious government examination of mounting evidence of the existence of UFOs, or UAP, identified area phenomenon, and the anticipated release of a report by the congressionally mandated UAP task force to investigate and, quote, gain insight into the, quote, nature and origins of unidentified flying objects. Earlier last year, the DOD classified three videos taken by Navy pilots, one from 2004 and two from 2015, that showed mysterious objects flying at high speeds across the sky. The congressional effort had the support of Senator Marco Rubio and more recently, former DNI John Radcliffe, who told Fox News that, quote, there are a lot more sightings than have been made public, end quote, and promised that the report expected any time this month would be big. But Gideon's article in The New Yorker found that this is not the only government task force in the last 70 years to cover this ground, that despite all of the popular dismissals of the existence of UFOs and the marginalization of very smart and dedicated people who spend their lives investigating sightings, the government has indeed been taking this issue seriously and and with surprising results. The question of whether we are alone in the universe remains a salient one. And Guinean points out the government has yet to fully debunk a number of sightings by its own people over the years and is likely sitting on a trove of definitive evidence that we have been visited by extraterrestrial aircraft. Gideon, I know this is a long article to summarize, but can you give us a sense of what is different today and how this plays into a longer timeline of government interest in UFO phenomenon? Uh, Thank you very much for that uh, really nice introduction. So when I started this, I was proceeding on the basis that things were clearly different today, that, you know, I had never paid a whole lot of attention to UFOs. And then all of a sudden in December 2017, there's this really big New York Times article cover story that said, or a one story that says um, the Pentagon has been, has had this black money program that was funded by Harry Reid from 2007 to 2012, and then kind of continued in an unfunded capacity after that. And this really marked the beginning of this new UFO renaissance. So my thought was, how did something go from, you know, this fringe tinfoil hat subject to something that was, you know, discussed in the Times and the Washington Post and elsewhere? What I found actually, and like really the reason that I did this story that what I found was so interesting was that the story is actually more complicated than that, that it's not that. UFOs were always this fringe topic that then all of a sudden in 2017 entered, you know, legitimate mainstream discourse in, in a new way. It's that there's, is a, for one thing, there was a long period of time in which UFOs were already a mainstream 
topic of conversation that from basically 1947 until 1970, this was just something that people talked about all the time. There are Gallup polls that say that, you know, more than 50% of Americans believed UFOs were real and that throughout the 60s. And it wasn't just, um, you know, people reading the Saturday Evening Post or Life or Look, that there's a long history of people in positions of real power who also expressed on the record their feelings that UFOs, that the UFO phenomenon was something to be taken seriously. This was amazing to me. I mean, I'd only ever thought of it as like the stuff of lurid pulp paperback covers, but there's this long, really serious history of what people have said and thought about UFOs. And there, you know, one of the goals of this piece was not to write about the conspiracy mongerers, was to write about, you know, people who had... Uh, you know, didn't necessarily believe that the government was hiding the secret truth about extraterrestrial visitation, but to write about people who were, you know, took a more agnostic position and people who, for the most part, thought that the government just didn't know what was going on, not people who thought the government knew everything. Um, but the one way in which some of this conspiracy thinking is not wholly untrue is that there certainly was a concerted effort, an organized effort on the part of um, influential government figures to ridicule this topic and to make it, uh, you know, they wanted to train people into thinking that it was silly and they wanted to explicitly debunk it. And that, that there's evidence of the way that they enlisted the media in this approach and that it's not completely crazy to say that this, that UFOs became this fringe topic in part because there was an organized effort to make it seem that way. Yeah, and it does seem like that there has been a real flush of Air Force and Navy sightings, or at not, least- not really Air Force, actually. Okay, so Navy. Yeah. Coming out, and you're seeing like you're seeing Fox News cover it. You're seeing it all over the newspapers. You're seeing it in YouTube videos, and that these th- this has lent a sort of legitimizing air to the sightings and the phenomenon in general, how much is that played? We're having military people come forward and say, hey, I saw something and I and we can't readily explain what it was. How does that play into the the the, the legitimization of of this issue? Well there there's a really interesting historical dynamic here. And this is something that you know, I didn't actually get to talk about explicitly in the article just for space reasons. And also it's, it's a little bit speculative, but um, one of the strong feelings I had while researching the history of this is that there's always been kind of a weird, subtle class component to the discussion of UFOs. And it's not just, there, somebody, uh, somebody had commented to me, oh, this is about, you know, lonely farmers on dusky back roads not being taken seriously. But actually, that's not really true. If you look through a lot of the more credible reports from the 50s and 60s, they were always pilots, both commercial and military, and lots of cops and firefighters and first responder types. And the anti-UFO position was almost exclusively taken by, you know, Harvard astrophysicists and, um, you know, elite scientific figures. And so there's one of the fights historically is a fight about, um, you know, who is assigned what kind of credibility and why. And so the, the, the 
the people that I had chosen to focus on for various reasons um, were the people who wanted to limit themselves to talking about people who would just, you know, reports that would just seem prima facie credible. And like certainly within the government, uh, it's it's hard to come out and say, oh, I don't believe our best trained fighter pilots, right? And in fact, when I wrote I wrote about some of the debunkers and I wrote about one of the debunkers that I actually think is kind of the tends to operate in better faith than a lot of them. Some of them are just like sniveling trolls. But the, the one guy I wrote about, Mick West, like I, I think for the most part he's going about what he, you know, he's a little patronizing, but he's going about what he does in, in good faith. And every time he sa- he gets up and says like, okay, let's look at these videos. You know, you, these videos are not dispositive of anything, but we can look at them and say like, there are clearly alternate explanations for what's going on in these videos besides alien spaceships, you know, that there are parallax issues that make things look like they're moving faster than they are. And there are, um, you know, issues with the way the infrared works and instrumental glitches and stuff like that. And of course, he gets piled on for saying, you know, people saying, what, you don't, you think you're better than our F-18 pilots? So like a lot of it is, is a fight about that you know, the, the construction of that credibility. Now, what, an interesting additional element to this, though, is that even some of the biggest, you know, scientific UFO proponents, this guy, J. Allen Hynek, that I write about, even he concluded, based on his own data, that pilots don't actually make great witnesses. That in part because pilots are trained to recognize in the sky what they expect to recognize in the sky. They tend to be very good at recognizing, you know, Soviet MIGs or whatever, but that that precisely that training maybe leaves them unprepared to recognize things that they that surprise them that they don't expect to see them. So a, a lot of this is just a fight over these these associated credibility issues. Uh, thanks, Gideon. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so, what what do you think accounts now for the government's recent willingness to publicize what it knows about, or at least some of what it knows about UAPs? given this history of trying to, to marginalize and, and dismiss it as ridiculous? So I think there are a lot of things going on here. Um, you know, one story, and I, I deliberately wanted to report in a way that um, th- there are a lot of different dots you could conceivably connect in this story and in this piece. One interpretation, kind of the most, I don't know, maybe not the most cynical interpretation, but the most kind of like deflationary interpretation is that basically you have this relatively small cohort of people who have been interested in this uh, in the context of other paranormal investigations. So there's Mm -hmm. this um, kind of reclusive real estate billionaire called Robert Bigelow um, who lives in Las Vegas and He's been involved, I mean, he's been involved in legitimate space stuff. He has a, a, a aerospace company called Bigelow Aerospace that makes inflatable habitats for, um, for astronauts. Um, but he's also funded paranormal inquiries dating back it, it, at least 25 years, if not more. And he was the one who initially helped get the ball rolling with, with Senator Reid, who is an old friend of his. Um, and the initial Pentagon program in the first couple of years was actually a contractor-led program led by a subsidiary of, of Bigelow's company that was looking into all this stuff. And they, it was kind of the same people that he'd been working with for 30 years in one capacity or another. Um, 
And you know, like you see these same names come up again and again. And then he, they, man, you know, they, and the, the story is a little complicated, but at, at a certain point it got moved from being this contractor led investigation to being in more of an internal Pentagon thing. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, like part of it is an object lesson and you don't necessarily need that many people to be interested in something if they're the right people at the right place at the right time. And, you know, by all accounts, this initial Pentagon program was not a big program and not a formidable program. But the fact that then it got written up in the Times the way that it did, and that at that point, you know, that as as one person put it to me, what the the clear explicit objective was, you know, if we can't get the Pentagon to take this seriously, because they had gotten a lot of pushback um, from the Pentagon in the early years, what we're going to do is we're going to get the public interested. And when the public is interested, there's going to be pressure on Congress. And when, when there's pressure on Congress from the media and the public, then Congress is going to put pressure on the DOD to take this more seriously. And it seems like that's basically what happened. Right. Well, so one of the things that I've noticed in the way that a lot of the politicians are talking about this is that they they want to frame it uh, in very alarming terms as a national security issue. And, and uh, one of the people who was on the uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, uh, Luis Elizondo, uh, has been making some pretty outlandish claims in some of his interviews saying that uh, some of these events or some of these sightings coincided with disabling of nuclear weapons. And so, so that's... I mean, that's yeah. been a, that's that's not a new story. That's a very old story. Okay. Um, uh, you know, the UFO people like to point to you know one of the most famous and alarming sightings, which was at Malmstrom uh, Air Force Base in Montana, I think, in 1967, when um, a, according to one of the figures at the military installation there, you know, a UFO passed over and disabled the took the ICBMs offline. And there are other cases. There's a there's a kind of a parallel case in Ukraine at a nuclear installation from a little bit later. Uh, so that's that's not a new story. That's an old story. Okay, but it, it seems like it fits in with this desire to portray these things, whatever they are, as a potential threat, uh, as a way of jetting up support for more military spending. So this is this is you know a place that the conversation has gone in a number of places now, and there's kind of a lot to say about this. The first thing I would say is that the, the UFO people hate this. They hate the way that it's been framed as a national security issue. And they like some of them really resent it. And they think like, you know, this is just like us to be like, like, you know, the, the aliens are the peaceful ones. <laughs> and we would, we would know if they were hostile because they would have vaporized us already. So the fact that they haven't vaporized us means that we know that they're peaceful. And we're the hostile ones. And in fact, like, you know, and this dates to the, to the early 50s, people saying that they were contacted by aliens to tell them that um, nuclear fallout from atomic bomb tests was not only, you know, polluting our own Earth, but having extra planetary effects. And that, in fact, the, um, the aliens had shown up because they thought that we were a danger to ourselves and the universe somehow. And then this became, you know, st- starting probably as early as the 60s, but certainly in the 70s, this was gen- this fed the psychological interpretations of the UFO phenomenon, that lots of people said, well, you know, this, um, 
this whole thing is actually just about our Cold War nuclear anxieties. And it's being, you know, these anxieties are being expressed through um, these fantasies of aliens visiting us and telling us that our nuclear weapons were a problem. Um, and in fact, even just this, you know, it, you're right that Elizondo has made this into more of a threat, but the way that, that historically the UFO people tell this story is, you know, they didn't come to, um, you know, any interference they um, uh, attempted with our nuclear installations was actually to shut stuff down and was to show us that this stuff was all bad and that we shouldn't okay. be using it. Um, uh, so for one thing, you know, I kind of deliberately didn't go down this route because there's so much anthropo like anthropologizing of these beliefs. And I just thought that like in this particular case, like I'm not really interested in, you know, telling this group of people that their beliefs should act, you know, that like their very real beliefs should actually be understood as metaphors for something else, just because that's like a pretty condescending thing to do. But also I thought, you know, why not kind of turn that around? Like you can psychologize in one direction. Why not like do a little bit more of the psychologizing of the debunkers, which I found to be just a little more interesting because that doesn't tend to get, tend to happen. Now, all that said, and I realize this is sort of a digressive response. Um, I do. So, the UFO people really don't like the fact that this has now been framed as a national security issue. Um, but also I tend to resist that interpretation just because what everyone told me and like people who really had no reason to be saying this otherwise is that like, look, if you you're at the Pentagon and you want to get more money for something, talking about UFOs is a completely ridiculous and counterproductive way to do it. Yeah. Um, and that like, you know, there are plenty of better ways to increase your funding if you want more funding than talking about UFOs. And in fact, you know, you look back at this original ATIP program, it was only $22 million, which, you know, is a lot of money that probably would have been better spent on a lot of other things. But, um, you know, it's a rounding error on the defense budget. And as far as anybody has said, like, even this task force is not particularly well funded. It's like two people at a desk in the Pentagon. But, but, sorry, I'll, I'll add one thing, Barbara, um, to that, which is this certainly has intersected with um, more traditional military concerns if, like, one of the ways in which this has become, uh, I guess, more palatable to the national security establishment is to say, well, you know, there's a, there's a good chance that these are just drones. Uh, and there's been a lot of reporting on some of these incidents that suggest that their drones or their drone swarms or their drones masquerading as something that, you know, more alarming than drones. And, you know, that certainly is a military concern. Um, so, you know, it, it's a funny intersection of, of people who have pretty divergent beliefs coming together with the hope that if they push the study of this, that, you know, they're either going to figure out that it's drones and that then we need to like really beef up our anti-drone capabilities or whatever, um, in which it would be a more traditional national, national security concern. And on the other side, these people who absolutely don't think it's drones and absolutely don't think it's a threat, but are still happy that somebody's paying attention. So um, you've already answered a couple of the, the topics that I did want to ask you about, but I was wondering in your article, you did a great job and I think it's fairly typical. Our, our audience, we discuss these national security issues that when the CIA gets got involved, 
um, all of a sudden it became the norm to ridicule the idea of UFOs. And then before that, that wasn't happening. I was wondering if you could explain just a little bit more um, what the CIA did that fostered, or if if we know, or if potentially we don't know, then, um, <laughs> but if you so, could illuminate a little bit more on that. So in um, so in nineteen in June of nineteen forty seven, there's this the sighting that gives us the phrase "flying saucers." There's a, a private aviator um, in uh, Washington State near Mount Rainier who sees these nine undulating objects that he described as having a kind of boomerang or a, a manta ray shape. That then a newspaper headline turned into "flying saucers," and then that kind of that meme stuck and became contagious. And in the wake of this, uh, and then actually the, the same month or the next month was the, was the purported Roswell crash, although that wasn't, didn't make news contemporaneously in quite the same way that the Arnold sighting did. And that over the next couple of months, there was just this flood of reports. And the military decided that they really needed to do something about all of these reports coming in so there was a, a memo, a really famous memo written in September of 1947 by um, a guy who was then a lieutenant general in uh, Air Material Command, um, who then actually went on later to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, where he said, you know, whatever this phenomenon, it, whatever it is, it's something real and it's not visionary or fictitious. Um, and, you know, he certainly seemed concerned that the Soviets had made some kind of like great technological breakthrough and thought that we should be looking into this. And so from 19, from the fall of 1947 was the first time that the government had an official program to field reports and to look into this. And, you know, by all accounts from basically 1947, at least through 1953, these were really serious programs. Now, the, that didn't necessarily mean that everybody in the government thought that these were aliens. And in fact, it, it seems like all of, there were kind of one program became another program, became a third program. And in these years, all of the reports they issued seem like riven by this internal conflict where like, you know, there was one camp that believed, you know, at the time they said extraplanetary because that was kind of the limit of their cosmic imagination um, uh, or interplanetary rather. Um, one group of people said these, you know, are, possibly have an interplanetary origin and then another group said no that's silly but maybe there really is you know maybe the soviets did make some kind of breakthrough in in propulsion or or lift um so you kind of you have this whole like series of reports that come out in which like you can see this tension play out and every time um, it seems like the center of gravity moves toward the like, you know, either this is nothing, either this is a mass hallucination or it's, um, you know, advanced Soviet aircraft, something really weird happens. And then after something really weird happens, again, the interplanetary people are like, well, we told you something weird was going on. And so they're, they're, like, there's this tension. Um, and then in July of 1952, there's this really famous sighting over the White House or over Washington. Um, and at the time, and, and this was reported everywhere. I mean, I quote like this crazy New York Times headline from, from the time, but it was everywhere. And that month, and the, the Air Force initially said, well, they hadn't taken any defensive maneuvers. And then later it turned out that in fact, they had scrambled jets to, to intercept whatever it was. I mean, the, the official explanation 
both then and since then is that this was just um, temperature inversions that showed up on on radar. Um, but in any case, the Air Force has a press conference in July of 1952 in which they say, you know, they try to kind of poo-poo the whole thing, but at the same time they say there's a certain percentage of um, credible reports of incredible things happening. And that's kind of the frame over the next like 20 years is credible reports of incredible things. And in the wake of this uh, Washington flap, the CIA set up a panel to try to get to the bottom of whatever was going on. And the panel meets at the White House for four days in um, January of 1953. It was called the Robertson panel because it was headed up by a Caltech physicist named Robertson. And the, you know, from everything that came out afterward, I mean, this didn't come out at the time, but by, by the 70s, I think all of this had come out. Um, the idea behind the Robertson panel was not, oh, we're being visited by too many UFOs, but we're being flooded by too many UFO reports, and that this is really an, an actual national security problem, uh, because uh, it's going to you know, give our adversaries the idea that we don't, we don't even have any idea what's going on in our own airspace, and that would project a kind of weakness that in the early days of the Cold War was unacceptable. Um, but that also, it was just too much noise, and that in fact, we did want, you know, for obvious reasons, credible reports of any kind of um, you know, surveillance or incursion, um, and that we were, they were worried that any credible reports would kind of get lost in this maelstrom of mass hallucination. Um, so that was when, uh, according to documents that came out later, for example, you know, th the decision there was made, A, to infiltrate civilian UFO groups, uh, of which there were a number at that time, just to keep tabs on them, and B, to enlist the media in a program that the phrase was to train and debunk. Um, to show people that there was no there there. And That's like a counter information warfare going on. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. By our CIA happening here to, to program Americans to think something different than what they naturally already thought. And, and yet we all, even internally here, had a little discussion. Should we do a podcast on UFOs? Is this okay? Like, you know, is this a little crazy? Or, yeah, but we all, we've all had to like make this transition. And I just find it so fascinating that this is because of a deliberate move from the CIA. This wasn't, I never knew that before your article, that that, that was something they did. It wasn't something that came with the topic of aliens or came with the topic of UFOs, but really quick, because I know we're almost out of time and there's so much to get to here. And this is so fascinating. But well, can I say one more thing yes, about the CIA? Yes. So, um, and I, I didn't really have this, but I, I kind of go into this as a parenthetical, but I don't expand on it. At the same time, the CIA was playing both sides of this, um, or at least they would be shortly thereafter, because as document, you know, documents emerged later, where the CIA admitted that they appreciated the volume of UFO reports because you know, they were developing things like the U-2 spy plane and the SR-71 Blackbird, and that, in fact, for counterintelligence reasons, it was great to have these UFO reports because it obscured the reality of these classified projects. Interesting. It's a, this is amazing. It is actually an example of counterinformation in process. And then it's almost as if they were too successful at the ridicule aspect and they needed to back it down. Like, okay, guys, this was, but you know, I, 
Oh, I really actually have two questions for you, but you, when you describe the congressional, I, I don't know that we have time, but I, I, I do want to ask you this because you described that congressional commission and you described how they, um, they did not, they had all these unidentified sightings that they couldn't explain, but that they come to the conclusion that um, nothing to see here, basically. Correct? Yeah. Am I, it, Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah. I just found that to be very typical of Congress. I'm just throwing in my well, it was, well, it was that was an academic commission, actually. Congress funded oh, okay. um, a nuclear physicist at the University of Colorado to do this two years. Oh, okay. Okay. So, but then, but then they then they use that as an excuse to say, like, see, we asked scientists, and scientists said there's nothing going on. But so this is so fascinating, so analogous to so much that's happening today. But also, just to fast forward to where we're at with the story right now, Congress is doing something about this and is about to. Could you just tell us where we're at? Like, just so in June, what will be happening? So where we're at now is that. Things happened in kind of a funny order. There was um, last August, the then Deputy Secretary of Defense um, came out and announced that there was this UAP task force. Um, and But people kind of already knew this because in July, there would, had been a draft version of the Intelligence Authorization Bill that included this language about how there was a task force being set up and that the Director of National Intelligence, in conjunction with the Secretary of Defense's office was going to have to canvas the other agencies um, and put together disparate sets of interagency data to try to figure out like what we knew and didn't know about uh, UFOs. Um, so then that finally passed at the end of December, and it, 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 this isn't. There's a little bit of confusion about this because people talk about it like this stipulation was binding. It's not binding. It's a, it's a recommendation um, that within 180 days, this task force is supposed to come up with a report um, on, you know, what different corners of the government know about UFOs. Um, now, some of this seems to be, so there are certainly people who think like this is just the prelude to, you know, us discovering the long suppressed truth over seven years. And like, in a funny way, it's almost like a, like a kind of Rorschach test for how you think about government competence, yeah. because a lot of these UFO people, like, like the, one of the implicit assumptions is that like the government is actually fantastically comp, com, uh, competent, excuse me, that like they really know what's going on and they not only know what's going on, they've been so incredibly competent that they've been able to like stage manage this and keep it secret for this right. long. Right. Um, and then there are, you know, like probably the, the more plausible interpretation is not that like the government is fantastically complicated, but like nobody really knows. And like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And that like part of this is a sort of data fishing expedition that, for example, one of the things that comes up a lot of times is like, and I really don't know that much about this, so I might get some of the terminology wrong, but like, you know, we have NORAD monitoring our airspace at all times for incoming missiles or whatever. But because like you need to set different kinds of like algorithmic thresholds for what is being picked up on and what's not, like these are only trained to be looking for like things that look like ICBMs and not things that look like 
birds. Um, and so they have these long lists of what they call uncorrelated targets, which are like things that are picked up, but that like the system ignores or filters out as like meaningless noise. And so one of the things that UFO people want to be done here is they, they want this data to be made available to say like, let's, you know, use machine learning to like, screen this data in a different way so that we're not just like ruling everything out that like isn't traveling at a certain speed at a certain altitude, the way that we would expect like a missile threat to be traveling so part of it is just like why don't we just look at a lot of this data or like you know the global acoustic monitoring system that we have like could we is there data that could be found there to suggest you know like in places that we haven't looked it's so fascinating and i'm really looking forward to see what the congressional commission comes out i know there's this joke that if you don't want the answers you get the government to look into it but i'm I'm uh, hopeful, and I hope I'm not giving away too much about what I think here, but I hope that we do learn a little bit more here in June. I'm going to turn it over to Kelly. Well, thank you, Gideon, for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciate your article. Uh, if if you guys haven't read it, listeners, uh, it is at The New Yorker, and it is entitled How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously. It is a tremendous read. And yes, Gideon, we'd love to have you on uh, some other time after this task force comes out and we get a little bit more insight on what the thank government is up so to. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.